This is Guns and Butter. value of a house or a company or a toll road or a street that you can put parking meters on is however much a bank will lend against it. And uh, the interest-bearing capacity of any asset is what's looked at as wealth. Well, the reality is that debt isn't wealth. Debt is debt. Debt is the antithesis of wealth. And somehow there's been an inversion a turning inside out or upside down of the whole idea of what wealth is. And now the idea is saying that debt is wealth. Well, that's like saying that uh, war is peace. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Dress Rehearsal for Debt Peonage. Michael Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of The Myth of Aid and Global Fracture, the New International Economic Order. Dr. Hudson has written many articles on the current global financial crisis. A few of his most recent articles that we discuss today are Instead of Real Financial Reform, Obama's Plan Capitulates to Wall Street, Bogus Solutions to the Financial Crisis, The Latest in Junk Economics, and The IMF Collects Debts on Behalf of the World's Largest Banks, Michael Hudson, welcome. Thank you very much, Bonnie. The stock market is back up over 9,000. The Dow Jones Industrials, that is, are over 9,000 again. To what do you attribute this? The government has given $13 trillion to the financial sector. Now, if you're going to give $13 trillion to the financial sector and uh, flood the economy with money, obviously this is worth something. So uh, essentially, the stock market is rising to reflect the government giveaway. Now, we're reading that the banks uh, that took the bailout money, that some of them are returning the bailout money. What's with this? When they originally got the uh, giveaway from the government, uh, the government uh, made a charade of pretending that it was going to get some of the benefit from uh, bailing out Wall Street. Uh, You had, for instance, Uh, Warren Buffett make a loan to uh, a number of Wall Street institutions and make uh, a huge killing on it. Uh, The government also uh, said that, well, we have stock warrants uh, that we're going to get so that if your stock recovers and you don't go bankrupt, uh, then uh, because we rescued you, we want to get something like Warren Buffett has. Uh, What they're getting is about one-tenth of what Warren Buffett had. Uh, The government has been utterly misleading and uh, deceptive in what it has been saying it's got. It said that, well, look, we've uh, just been uh, reimbursed by uh, Goldman Sachs, and we've made an annualized return of 23%. Well, they hope that the average reader is going to say, oh, an annualized return of 23%. That's a lot of money. But they don't realize that uh, not even a year has gone by, and uh, the companies are saying, well, wait a minute, we want, instead of giving you a share of our 
profits and a share of our capital gains we're getting. We want to repay you now at a very low price so that uh, we won't have to pay you more and so that you will not get a share of the gains we have. So they're paying the government way ahead of schedule. The government is not using its option to hold on and get much more later. It's essentially doing a giveaway to Wall Street and letting Wall Street buy shares on the cheap in itself uh, that is enabling uh, the large companies to pay much larger bonuses. The administration's aim is to increase, probably double the size of the bonuses that they can pay on Wall Street by giving a windfall gain to uh, Goldman Sachs and to Chase Manhattan and to uh, the other uh, major firms by letting them uh, cash in their uh, inexpensive uh, stock now. And in fact, the most recent cash-in uh, was saying, well, wait a minute, under the terms we negotiated that are so much better for us than the terms that Warren Buffett uh, negotiated, uh, if we go out and get private capital, and we can now go and get private capital because you've given us $13 trillion, so of course we're worth more, uh, then uh, you're crowded out and you don't get anything. So it turns out that the uh, money that is being repaid to the government shows how utterly corrupt the giveaway of bailout money to these uh, private companies was. There's been a huge transfer of resources from the public sector uh, to Wall Street, and uh, Wall Street wants to make sure that it doesn't have to pay the government for uh, the gift that it's got. Well, yes. I was just about to ask you what the deal is with the banks now claiming that they're profitable because we all thought they were bankrupt. Now, I mean, have they really become profitable? Uh, yes, they have. There's a difference between profits and uh, capital losses. They had a huge capital loss that has nothing to do with operating profits. A company or a building or a person can be bankrupt and still make an income. Uh, they had uh, worthless garbage, uh, worthless fictitious mortgages and packages uh, in their portfolios to back the deposits. They were able to take about $2 trillion of these junk mortgages and exchange these to the Federal Reserve for uh, actual Treasury bonds, and this was the famous cash-for-trash uh, trade-off. So they were able to give their junk to the U.S. government, uh, which now holds the junk. Uh, so that has uh, solved their balance sheet. Meanwhile, they're very profitable. There was a big article in the Financial Times today that banks are now making more money on late fees and penalties and overdrafts than they're actually making on interest. So they're making profits by uh, increasing the cost structure to the American economy very strongly. Uh, and the more they can increase the cost of doing business to American families and to American companies, the higher their uh, profits are. Their profits uh, are directly proportional to how much they can raise the cost of doing business and raise the cost of living to Americans. And uh, the government is saying, raise the cost by enough to make yourself profitable. Well, that reminds me of a friend of mine, someone I know, who has a line of credit with one of the banks. It's a small amount, but uh, he had been required as a minimum payment, this is on a credit card, a minimum payment of 2% every month if he wanted to just pay off the minimum. Now, he's gotten a letter from Chase saying, well, now you're going to have to pay as a minimum payment 5% a month or pay this off. 
Mm-hmm. So I guess they can just change the rules anytime they want. Yes, that's in the small print, that they're allowed to change the rules. And if the person does not pay the 5%, then they uh, have to pay very heavy late fees as well and penalties. So Chase has just been able to make a lot more money uh, from the people that can't pay. Banks make money by uh, what's called predatory finance, by making sure that they charge more than the customer can pay. Their objective is to take every uh, bit of income the customer has and move it from their pocket into uh, Chase's pocket or uh, Wall Street's pocket. That's their business plan. Yes, what you're saying now reminds me of something I read in the paper recently about why uh, the banks are not foreclosing on properties to get the like the $1,000 that they would get from the government to rewrite the mortgage, because if they just string along, they make more money off of people going into default. Yeah, uh, what they do is they keep adding on late fees so that when the default uh, occurs, they can claim reimbursement for all of the late fees and non-payments. Uh, and originally, banks made money from people paying interest on the money they'd borrow to invest productively. And the idea was that any profit uh, or capital gain that the borrower gets, they turn over to the bank. But now the new business plan is the banks make money on the inability of the customer to pay. Uh, they get late fees, and then finally uh, they turn to the government and get reimbursement uh, for the mortgage, including all of the late fees and increased uh, charges that are written into the uh, mortgage. Exactly. And then this explains why there aren't more homes actually in foreclosure, because they don't make as much money that way. That's right. Today's New York Times reports guaranteed bonuses back on Wall Street and that Obama's pay czar, a person named Feinberg, won't be able to affect most of these multi-million dollar guaranteed bonuses. Uh, The New York Times article went on to describe talent wars among the banks bidding up salaries of derivatives traders, currency speculators, and computer trading programmers, etc., so that the salaries on Wall Street, at the top at least, are uh, not just staying where they were, but they're increasing. That's right. The contract they've made with their traders uh, gives them a guaranteed share of the profits they make. Of course, they're not really profits, remember. If they were profits, they'd have to pay interest on them. So traders don't make profits. They make capital gains that are taxed at only a fraction of what wage earners have to get. So the government subsidizes the traders. They subsidize financial parasitism by saying, uh, we want the economy to stop producing industrial goods, to stop earning an income. We want the whole economy to operate on the basis of capital gains, of trading everything back and forth. This is the post-industrial economy. We don't have to produce anything. And to make sure that uh, we make money by trading, we're going to count all the trading profits as capital gains. And not only are they officially taxed at only half the rate of earned income, wages and profits, uh, but if you take these gains and you use them to buy yet more property, uh, you don't have to uh, pay at all. So as uh, Leona Helmsley said, only the little people pay taxes which means only labor and industry pay taxes, not Wall Street. Yes, her quote is one of my favorites of all time. Do you think that she went to jail because she was telling the truth? No, she went to jail because uh, 
she uh, falsified her uh, reports. And uh, the fact is, had she handled things differently in, in an accounting basis, uh, her principal was right, but uh, she was cheating on her tax return. And uh, it became very embarrassing for uh, the government not to throw her in jail. But they did agree not to throw her husband in jail. According to your article, instead of real financial reform, Obama's plan capitulates to Wall Street. You talk about a financial regulatory reform proposal of Obama's that promotes Wall Street's product, debt creation, at the expense of the economy at large, and lets financial chieftains continue to self-regulate the debt industry, and, by the way, to keep all their gains from the past decade's worth of fraudulent lending scot-free. Does Obama's plan make the Federal Reserve the sole regulator? What's going on? The uh, people he's appointed are the neoliberals from the Clinton administration who were uh, advocating the repeal of Glass-Steagall in 1999 that led to all of these problems. Essentially, his uh, economic team consists of Wall Street lobbyists. And what Obama is uh, being told is, how do we deregulate Wall Street so that uh, the government has no power at all to regulate us or to tell us what we can do? Well, uh, they've come up with a brilliant plan. All you need to do is uh, uh, take regulatory authority away from every government agency, take regulatory authority away from every court, and put it in the hands of the Federal Reserve, and then put an ideological fanatic, such as Alan Greenspan, in charge of the Federal Reserve, who refuses to regulate, just as Alan Greenspan refused to regulate. Wall Street, which uh, for the last hundred years has uh, been against all regulation, calling it socialism, is saying, this is a wonderful idea. Yes, yes, we want to be regulated by just one central authority, the Federal Reserve, because they know that the Federal Reserve, its role is to act as a lobbyist for uh, the commercial banking system on Wall Street. So by appointing Federal Reserve, uh, the bank regulator, essentially, you've appointed its own lobbyist as a self-regulator, which means a non-regulator. So all you have to do is put someone like Ben Bernanke in charge of the Fed, and uh, the Fed will just tell the Wall Street, do whatever makes money. Uh, What's good for you is good for the economy, even if it's strangling the economy, even if it's leading to higher unemployment, even if it's deindustrializing the economy and uh, polarizing the economy between creditors and debtors. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Dress Rehearsal for Debt Peonage. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, you mentioned Glass-Steagall, and in this same article of yours, you point out that Paul Volcker was brought in as an economic advisor for Obama's reforms, and uh, indeed the former Fed chairman, uh, Mr. Greenspan's predecessor, gave some good advice. Reverse the repeal of Glass-Steagall. What happened with this? Uh, He was brought in largely for window dressing because people had respect for him. So you want to bring in a a group of people who are uh, trotted out as advisors, uh, and then you ignore everybody whose advice you don't want to take. So obviously his advice is not being taken. In other words, uh, investment banking is not the same thing as 
commercial banking. Commercial banking is supposed to be basically a public utility, not a uh, means of financing and making money. And Paul Volcker said these two things are just the opposite. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had lunch uh, just last week with one of my old Chase Manhattan friends who used to work with Paul Volcker, and uh, he was reminding me of uh, just uh, the difference in philosophy between our generation and uh, between the new generation that uh, somehow has been convinced that what's good for Wall Street is good for the economy, although Wall Street's product is debt, and uh, it makes its money off debt. Uh, it makes its money off collecting interest on debt in the first place and then collecting uh, predatory uh, fees and late fees and payments and uh, foreclosing when the debts can't be paid. So uh, this is a difference in generations by uh, people really who didn't ever grow up with a experience of a financial downturn. Since Ben Bernanke is the head of the Fed, should he be the sole regulator? And why would Wall Street want Ben Bernanke as its chief regulator? Uh, the reason Wall Street wants uh, Bernanke as a regulator uh, would be clear if you look back at what he wrote in 2004. He gave a speech uh, that's on the Fed uh, website uh, to the Eastern Economic Association called The Great Moderation. And he also gave a speech uh, to the Fed called the Great Moderation. Now, here in 2004, he said the period, uh, the last 25 years, from 1979 to 2004, have been a great moderation. If you look at uh, employment and output, it's never been so stable. Well, if you look at the balance sheet for uh, 1979 to 2004, this is the greatest immoderation in American economic history. In 1979, you had the wealthiest 1% of the people, as I think I've said in your uh, uh, program before, having 37% of the wealth. By 2004, they'd increased their share of America's returns to wealth, that is, interest, rent, dividends, and capital gains, to 57%. And it's just about twice that now. Bernanke has a, a blind spot. Uh, although he's nominally head of the Federal Reserve that deals with finance, finance plays no role in his mind at all. In order to be head of the Federal Reserve, in order to have a financial regulatory position in government, you have to ignore finance. You have to ignore debt. You have to assume that debt is not a problem. It's only a solution. And you have to assume that the financial sector adds to national output, not uh, act as an overhead, absorbing wages and turning them into interest payments, absorbing corporate profits and diverting uh, corporate cash flow away from capital investment into interest payments. You have to be blind as to the effect of uh, finance on the economy. And this blind spot goes all the way back to Ricardo, who was the lobbyist for the bank sector in England after the Napoleonic Wars ended in 1815. Uh, and the blind spot is inherent in the Chicago School of Milton Friedman and the University of Chicago Monetarists. So it seems ironic that a school that should call itself monetarist and free market actually doesn't have any role for debt at all. It imagines, as Mr. Bernanke does, that money and debt merely reflect 
the real economy's earning power. So uh, in their analysis, the value of an asset is you take the uh, earnings or the income uh, that it can pay, and you capitalize it at the going rate of interest, and you say, how much can one borrow against that amount of income? Uh, how much can you borrow against a corporation that earns so much profit? How much can you borrow against a real estate that uh, earns so much rent over taxes? And uh, whatever banks will lend, that's the value of wealth. So they define wealth in terms of how much a bank can lend and how much of this wealth can be absorbed and turned into interest payments for Wall Street. Well, of course, once uh, all of the national surplus is turned into interest, there's no money for rising living standards. There's no money for uh, increased capital investment. And the economy goes into depression just as we're going into. That blind spot is a precondition for the head of the Fed. So uh, Bernanke is... Uh, uh, what's called a well-meaning fool. Uh, he doesn't understand what he's talking about, and uh, that's just who you want to regulate Wall Street. Uh, you want a blind policeman in charge. So are you saying that Ben Bernanke defines wealth as debt? Uh, he defines wealth as how much a entity can borrow, which is debt. In other words, what's its debt-bearing capacity? Right. A quick follow-up on Paul Volcker. Now, I've heard him roundly criticized for when he was the head of the Fed, of course, took interest rates up to 20, 22 percent, and the claim has been made that that caused the deindustrialization of the United States. Do you agree with that? It certainly stopped capital investment, because nobody can invest when they have to pay 22%. Uh, what he did was a response to the Vietnam War. Uh, the United States was running a huge uh, balance of payments deficit. Uh, it was running a large inflation, and if he wouldn't have done that, uh, raised the interest rates, then living standards would have risen in this country. So raising the interest rates to crisis levels was uh, critical in order to prevent American living standards from rising. And uh, the government believes that uh, the key to economic management is to reduce living standards so there will be more money to pay uh, essentially the companies and corporations to pay the banks. That's the working business plan of the U.S. government. Oh, that's interesting, because I was just about to ask you why the government would want living standards to not go up. Uh, because politicians are responsive to the campaign contributors uh, that they have, and the main campaign contributors are, uh, are Wall Street, uh, the finance, insurance, and real estate industry. And uh, they want the economic surplus for themselves, they don't want it to go to labor. Essentially, we're living in a transition from democracy to oligarchy, and the oligarchy wants uh, the money for itself, not for the people. Well, yes, and of course that makes sense now, because then if living standards went up, we'd be having the money to spend on ourselves and not them. That's correct. Uh, now, getting back to your article on Obama's new financial regulatory reform proposal, you write that this financial regulatory reform that Obama is proposing has six major flaws. Do you want to talk about some of those flaws? Um, you say that uh, one of the failures is the failure to give meaningful teeth to fraud reduction. And you talk about the Consumer Financial Products Agency. And I guess we've talked about that with regard to the credit cards, huh? Uh, it's more than that. Uh, when Obama bailed out Wall Street, 
he thought, uh, are the people really going to take this? Uh, we have to give something ostensibly to protect the victims of predatory finance. As long as we're giving uh, $13 trillion to predatory finance, we have to give something to the victims. So he said, not only am I giving the biggest giveaway in history, not only am I tripling America's federal debt uh, to give to Wall Street, but I'm setting up an agency to protect consumers from predatory finance. But all that was is a proposal, and immediately the financial uh, lobbies got in and said, well, wait a minute, don't give this any teeth. Uh, make sure that they don't have any power. So uh, everybody, especially the Wall Street Journal, uh, is expecting Congress to say, well, we'll go along with the giveaway to Wall Street, but we don't want any agency to protect consumers on this. So the belief now is that nobody's going to be around to protect the consumers. Another flaw that you saw in Obama's uh, financial regulatory reform proposal was the failure to reverse the shift to pro-creditor bankruptcy laws. That's right. For uh, almost a decade, the banks have uh, pushed what ended up in the 2005 uh, Bankruptcy Act, which greatly increases the difficulty of individuals wiping out their debts uh, for bankruptcy. Uh, the government is trying to make it impossible for consumers and homeowners and wage earners ever to get free of debt by bankruptcy. Only the rich people can get rid of their debts, and they get rid of the debts by turning it over to the public sector and making the government pay. Uh, but consumers are not supposed to get rid of their debts. So essentially, if you can't pay your debt, uh, we're moving into a society of what I call debt peonage, where if you buy a house and you can't pay the mortgage, uh, the proposals in the Wall Street Journal last Friday were uh, that the government can come after you for your entire life, uh, and essentially you have to live in debtor's prison for the rest of your life in a kind of uh, a Dickensian way, except that uh, you're uh, able to stay at home instead of in prison to cut uh, public costs, but you have to turn over all of your income to the creditors to pay for the uh, junk mortgage that you've been signed in the fraudulent uh, practices of the last uh, five years. Yes, I was going to ask you to elaborate on what debt peonage would look like in this country, but I guess you've kind of just done that. Debt peonage is when all of the surplus over and above basic needs goes to pay creditors. Well, that's a good That's a good. Uh... Uh, In other words, you're uh, you're able to live, but all of the surplus you produce, anything you earn, anything you produce, anything companies earn, over and above break-even costs, has to go to pay interest to the financial sector. What happened in the Roman Empire, and the result was the Dark Ages. And the problem is that creditors live in the short run, and they tend to be, it's like in nature, you have parasites that as they've evolved in good Darwinian style, uh, they end up usually helping the host. And a, a good parasite will say, well, look, I, w I want to take the host's blood and nourishment, and I have to do something to help the host. I have to help it digest food, or I have to help it uh, find new uh, sources of nourishment. Uh, an intelligent parasite in nature doesn't take so much from the host that it kills the host, because then it wouldn't be able to have any more nourishment. It wants to keep the host going. Uh, but at the very end of the process, when the host is about to die, then the parasite lays the eggs, and the eggs uh, hatch and devour the host. Uh, that's the end stage. Uh, we're in that final stage of the credit cycle now, 
when the financial sector realizes we've broken the American economy, it's time to take the money and run. And that's the stage of the financial cycle we're into. We're in the bailout phase and take the money and run, and Wall Street's trying to get the government just to uh, take its uh, cash for trash as much as possible to give it the bailout, and then it's moving its money abroad as quick as it can to buy resources abroad, to buy foreign companies, uh, to buy foreign debt, to buy uh, foreign raw materials, to speculate in the oil and copper and the steel markets and drive up prices. So essentially, you're having the financial sector jump ship, realize that uh, it's killed the American economy, and how much can it uh, carve up the economy to take what it can uh, as it destroys the economy? What do you think this place is going to look like when they jump ship? Well, uh, I'm dealing with two countries that are sort of the wave of the future. Iceland and Latvia are two countries that uh, have so much debt that is beyond their ability to pay that the result, for one thing, is emigration. Uh, A lot of Icelanders are emigrating. The people in Iceland and Latvia uh, are running down their savings accounts in order to keep trying to pay the interest on their houses that are falling in price. They're trying to keep up with uh, living standards, although their family members are being laid off. And uh, first of all, they, they dissipate all of the savings they have, paying them out to the creditors. And finally, in order to survive, they're leaving the country. So you have depopulation. Uh, falling birth rates, rising death rates. The IMF, for instance, has gone to Latvia, which is the most seriously indebted of all the post-Soviet economies, and saying, uh, you have too many people that are using medical care. Uh, They've just cut back the hospital budget by 50%. They're saying you have to let the old people die. Uh, They've cut back the schooling by 50%. They're saying you cannot afford to educate your population. If you want an education, you must leave the country. They're uh, saying that essentially Latvians uh, have to cut their population by one-third in the next couple of years. Same thing for Iceland. One-third of you have to lose your houses, have them plowed under. One-third of your uh, people have to emigrate uh, in order to pay essentially what we foreign investors want. We want your geothermal resources. We want your hydroelectric dams. We don't want the people. You have to uh, run a budget surplus, not pay unemployment insurance, not uh, industrialize, not invest, uh, cut back your medical costs, cut back your education, and strip all of your money so whatever you, the government, extract, you pay to the foreign creditors. That's the dress rehearsal for uh, the United States. Well, now, if we're all going to try and emigrate, where are we going to go? I don't know. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Dress Rehearsal for Debt Peonage. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. One of the other uh, points of Obama's financial regulatory reform proposal that you say is a failure is the failure to deter credit default swaps and other casino capitalist gambles. You pointed out that uh, Mr. Obama proposes that loan originators keep a token 5% on their books only. There's been a large discussion in the financial press over whether computerized trading, uh, whether speculative trading, for instance, in oil and other uh, products, whether the whole idea of default uh, insurance swaps and derivatives and uh, gambling really helps the economy at all, 
or whether it's really just gambling, and instead of gambling on which way uh, interest rates or exchange rates or stock prices might go, uh, how is that different from uh, gambling on who's going to win the next baseball game or win the next horse race? And uh, the idea is, should Wall Street be uh, essentially... Uh, conducting all of this activity by huge computers in trillions of dollars of uh, derivatives and bets uh, is a way of making money. Is that how we want America to make money? Or do we want the economy to make money by investing in capital equipment and factories and farms that employ people and actually produce something? Uh, the Wall Street says, well, wait a minute, when we're making profits by essentially gambling on which way uh, derivatives are going and uh, which way oil prices are going, uh, we're buying oil not to uh, use in uh, gas tanks and not to make energy out of. We're buying oil to uh, create a shortage and drive up the price so we can make a capital gain trading on it. Uh, and we want to make sure that uh, you give us a tax break on this. And uh, you may tax uh, industry and you may tax factories and you may tax people, but don't tax the winners. And by the way, if we make a big loss and can't pay the winners, like AIG uh, tried to ensure uh, the gamblers who lost, that the government is going to come in and they're going to pay uh, essentially all the uh, winners in the casinos that go bankrupt so that everybody gets paid uh, at public expense from this kind of gambling. Is that the kind of economy we want? And Obama's advisors say, yes, that's the post-industrial economy. That's what we want. But another point that you make about uh, Obama's proposal uh, one of the failings, is the failure to reform the tax system that has distorted the financial system to promote predatory extractive debt, not productive industrial credit. The tax system in America has been under attack ever since the uh, income tax came in in 1913. Originally, the income tax fell on the wealthy. It was really a tax on the returns to wealth. Uh, only 1% of the population actually had to file an income tax return. And most of the income, uh, if you earned less than, say, about $102,000 today, uh, you didn't have to uh, even file a return. So uh, the tax was paid largely by the real estate and financial interests and the insurance interest. Well, for the last century, the uh, wealthy part of the population have chipped away. Uh, uh, they've paid lobbyists to write a small print into the tax code that uh, favors almost every kind of income that wealth gets uh, and that uh, the bulk of the population doesn't get. So what we have is a huge shift of the tax burden off property and off finance onto labor. Uh, and that's the real problem, that what has created this financial uh, twist of our system and distortion of our system is the fact that uh, absentee-owned property is largely tax-exempt. Uh, finance is tax-exempt, uh, industry is not tax-exempt, and labor isn't tax-exempt. So we've, we've turned America from a low-cost economy into a high-cost economy. And by privatizing uh, the public domain, we've turned what used to be user fees or services produced uh, freely, like roads and transportation, into uh, rent-gouging uh, exercises. We've uh, sold off the public domain and let buyers buy on credit 
uh, railroads and other public infrastructure, charge whatever the market would bear, raise the cost of doing business, raise the cost of living, and because they financed it all with debt, they count debt as a tax-deductible uh, expense, and they don't have to pay uh, income tax on money that they pay out in interest. So instead of favoring an equity economy, a savings economy, uh, the tax code favors a debt-leveraging economy. Uh, let's look at what's happening in California. California now, for instance, is an example. Uh, California, like many other states, has a budget condition where it has to be in balance. Now, uh, years ago in the 1970s, California passed Proposition 13. This limited the property tax to rise only 1% a year. Well, property, meanwhile, in California has risen at anywhere from 8% to 10% a year. And the effect of Proposition 13 has been a huge giveaway, largely to commercial property and to uh, the property of the wealthy. So uh, unable to tax property, uh, which is sort of the, the free rent, California has left all of this rental value of real estate, uh, homes and office buildings, uh, to be paid out to banks uh, as interest on loans taken out to buy the property. So it costs just as much uh, to have to operate and to, to get a home or an office building or a company under the uh, low property tax today as it would have cost under the high tax uh, property, except that instead of paying a property tax that goes to finance California's budget and pay for the education, uh, the high cost goes to pay the banks in interest. So California has to make up the amount of money somewhere else by taxing the labor and taxing at industry and causing unemployment. And uh, in the final instance, when it's not able to tax property, what does it do? It cuts back what used to be one of the best educational systems in the country to very low. It cuts back public spending. It cuts back medical spending. And the result is to reduce the Californian state economy to debt peonage. So California is very much in the position of Iceland or Latvia. Yes, and in addition to what you have listed, they're gouging all the way down to the parking meters. The sales tax has gone up. And, of course, then a lot of the infrastructure is going to be privatized, don't you think? That seems to be happening. In Chicago also, they've been privatizing uh, parking meters and everything so that somehow uh, things that used to be free are now being paid uh, to private uh, enterprises. If the government can't raise funds to uh, perform its basic uh, public sector duties, then it has to sell off the public domain to private uh, buyers. And the private buyers prefer to buy uh, any kind of a public enterprise or a right, like uh, the streets or parking rights or roads, uh, to turn them into toll roads, to put toll booths and parking meters everywhere they can over the economy, over the electric system, over the train system, the transport system, uh, the airwaves, everything that the government used to provide in the progressive era is public infrastructure that made America the most competitive economy in the world. It's now loading down with uh, privatized debt payments uh, to the banking system. And then it says, look at all the wealth we're creating. If the government owned these roads, 
This wouldn't be part of the private wealth, which is all they look at. Uh, this would be uh, zero wealth on the national balance sheet. But once we sell it uh, on credit to somebody who borrows the money, uh, it's worth as much money as a bank will lend against it. So that's what I said at the beginning of the talk, saying that uh, the value of a house or a company, or a toll road, or a street that you can put parking meters on, is however much a bank will lend against it. And uh, the interest-bearing capacity of any asset is what's looked at as wealth. Well, the reality is that debt isn't wealth. Debt is debt. Debt is the antithesis of wealth, and somehow there's been an inversion a turning inside out or upside down of the whole idea of what wealth is. And now the idea is saying that debt is wealth. Well, that's like saying that uh, war is peace. And isn't it also true that when the infrastructure is privatized, the people that buy it are borrowing the money from a bank to buy it, and then the interest they have to pay on these loans is tax-deductible? That's right, and in fact, they may uh, borrow it for themselves. For instance, in Iceland, uh, Iceland had hoped that when it uh, turned over its uh, geothermic power to Alcan and to aluminum plants, that this would be a natural resource, and it would get part of the uh, uh, economic rent from the cheap energy that it provides to make electricity. Basically, aluminum is made out of electricity because it's made out of clay, and clay is everywhere, but what isn't anywhere is electricity. Well, it turns out that Alcan uh, arranged uh, to borrow the money to debt leverage uh, from one of its other affiliates in one of the offshore banking enclaves where it doesn't have to pay tax, and then it uh, tells Iceland, well, wait a minute, we didn't make any profit. All the profit we had to pay is uh, interest uh, to the loan that we've made ourselves, so I'm sorry there's no income tax to pay you. So Iceland is left somehow without getting any benefit at all from the uh, natural resource that it thought was going to make it rich. So it turns out it doesn't really have a natural resource. It's been stripped by uh, the banking and financial sector, and that's what the financial sector has turned into across the world. In America, Iceland, Latvia, all over the world, the financial sector is asset stripping and income stripping. It doesn't uh, finance direct capital investment. It strips away the income from uh, investment or natural resources or land that's already in place and often is supplied by nature freely. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Dress Rehearsal for Debt Peonage. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, to sum up this uh, financial regulatory reform proposal of Obama's, what does this consist of? Is this something that has to pass the legislature or what? Yes, the government will have to agree to uh, rewrite the nation's uh, uh, regulatory laws. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, the Democrats in Congress will say, wait a minute, we're not even going to think of uh, turning over any regulation to the Federal Reserve until you agree uh, at the very outset uh, for the Consumer Financial Products Agency. We need consumer protection so that the massive national uh, subprime mortgage fraud, real estate fraud, and financial fraud uh, is not continued, so that the credit card ripoff and predatory financial practices will be stopped. Uh, that has to be the first order of priority. Then, instead of 
turning over all regulatory authority to the Federal Reserve, saying, wait a minute, the Securities and Exchange Commission has just turned into a lobbying interest for Wall Street. Uh, what the government should do is saying, we, d- we don't want just one regulator. Indeed, we want more than one regulator. We want five or six regulators. Uh, but unlike the past, we're not going to let companies shop around for the stupidest, dumbest, most understaffed and underfinanced regulator, they're all going to have authority. So you're not only going to have the Federal Reserve as oversight, you're going to have the Treasury as oversight. You're going to have the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, as oversight. We're actually going to put teeth in these regulations, just like we had 70 or 80 years ago. Uh, instead of deregulating, we're going to put real regulators in charge of the regulatory agencies. We're going to assign them a budget sufficient to give them enough uh, staff so that next time somebody turns in in great detail exactly how Bernie Madoff is uh, uh, running a Ponzi scheme for $50 billion, there's going to be somebody on staff that's available to actually read the letter and not just file it away under uh, the complaints in a filing cabinet like uh, was done before. We're going to actually have regulatory agencies that are run in the public interest, not in the interest of Wall Street, because self-regulation doesn't work. And the Federal Reserve is the lobbyist for the banking sector, owned by the commercial banks, not by the government. Uh, you don't have the lobbyist for the financial sector act as its regulator any more than you don't want the lobbyist uh, for the pharmaceuticals industry in control of the Federal Drug uh, Administration, as it is uh, right now, uh, and uh, similar agencies. You don't want them to be run by the industries and staffed by the uh, managers from the industries they're supposed to regulate. So then Obama's uh, reform proposal hasn't even, that hasn't gone through the legislature yet. We're no, waiting. he's still drawing it up and discussing things. Uh, and his proposals are giving the word reform as bad a name as it got in Russia under Yeltsin. Reform today is just the opposite of what reform meant during the progressive era of America 100 years ago. Then reform meant government oversight and checks and balances. Today, the word reform means getting rid of checks and balances. Uh, turning over regulation to the industries being regulated. It means exactly the opposite of what reform used to mean, and we've entered a world of Orwellian doublespeak. Yes, I think in your article you made the statement that instead of a Roosevelt, we've got a Yeltsin. That's right. Now, with regard to this uh, price inflation bubble, the latest one, of course, having been the subprime, um, You write that prices of everyone's property went up. Of course, so did people's debts. The problem is that asset prices fall when the Ponzi scheme ends, but the debts remain in place. That, yeah, the prices of the stuff that they've bought goes down, but their debts don't go down. What it means is that uh, somebody's bought a house for 500000 and now uh, they took out a full mortgage of 500000 but now the market price is only $300,000. So they're $200,000 in what's called negative equity. Now, what are they going to do? Are they going to walk away uh, in what's called jingle mail and mail in the keys to the bank and say, okay, we're going to walk out of this house and we're going to buy the house identical uh, to it across the street for $300,000. you have taken a $200,000 loss. 
the government is trying to uh, either tell the banks, gee, you've made a bad loan. Uh, we don't want you to lose any money because you're our biggest campaign contributor after all. We wouldn't be in office if it weren't for your campaign contributors' contributions that we've spent on television ads to get people to vote for us. So uh, we're going to split the loss with you, but you're going to be allowed to add all of the late fees and penalties. So in effect, you won't lose a penny. Uh, we'll bail you out of taxpayer expense so that when the people uh, walk out of their uh, $500,000 house and leave you with a $200,000 loss, we'll give you the 200000 out of the public debt and uh, everything will be okay. And by the way, uh, we're changing the law so the people who bought the $300,000 house, we can now sue them and make them pay the $200,000 loss and pay their debts for the rest of their life. Uh, they won't be able to uh, send their children to college. They won't be able to go to the hospital when they get sick. Uh, we'll make sure that all their money goes to you, not to spend on themselves. Is that right? They're going to change a law to go after the people that have walked away? That's what the Wall Street Journal proposed uh, last Friday, and that's what the uh, Wall Street lobbyists are trying to push uh, in Washington. Wow. You wrote a very interesting article, Bogus Solutions to the Financial Crisis, the Latest in Junk Economics, in which you discussed some of the summer book offerings proffering solutions to the financial crisis. These solutions included regulating or eliminating derivative trading, instituting a Tobin tax on securities transactions, uh, closure of offshore banking centers and ending their tax avoidance stratagems. But you write, no one is going so far as to suggest attacking the root of the financial problem. What is the root of the financial problem in your view? You you kind of indicate it would be the tax deductibility of interest? That's what, well, the financial problem itself is that debts are beyond the ability of the economy to pay. That's why I've spent some time talking about Iceland and Latvia. Uh, when you have a whole economy that can't pay its debts, uh, then it has to pay by running down its savings or by the government selling off the public domain or by uh, people forfeiting their homes or other assets to the creditors, and the economy polarizes between creditors and debtors. So that's the financial problem itself. Uh, the root of the problem is the fact that uh, the economy favors debt leveraging as a way of making money because it lets investors uh, deduct the interest charges they have to pay, uh, but dividends are not tax deductible. So it encourages debt financing rather than equity financing. And ever since the early 19th century, the Frenchman Henri Saint-Simon uh, said that, wait a minute, the problem of economies throughout Western civilization is that debts grow more rapidly then the economy can grow. And this is called the magic of compound interest. Any rate of interest is a doubling time. Uh, if you leave a debt uh, to get interest and to keep reinvesting the interest, uh, very quickly it doubles, it redoubles, it quadruples, and uh, the economy doesn't grow that fast. Economies uh, taper off in S-curves, and in fact, the heavier the debt burden, uh, the quicker the economies slow down, and the more uh, of the economic surplus is shifted out of the hands of industry, out of the hands of people, into the hands of creditors who use their interest income to load the economy down with yet more loans and yet more debt. That's their business plan. The product of banks is debt, and they make interest, they make late charges and penalties, 
and fees, and then finally they foreclose on property, and they make uh, management fees, and then they buy government and privatize government, and they get a bailout and add the bailout to the public debt until the whole economy is left without any surplus at all, and then growth stops. That's basically the problem, that the economy is being run uh, for the uh, creditor class, not only by the financial economy, but by the tax system. Once the creditor class gets control of the tax system and untaxes itself, untaxes its customers, mainly landlords and monopolies, uh, then you have the economic surplus uh, not used to increase living standards, not used to increase capital investment, to increase productivity, uh, not used to create the leisure society that people expected that they were going to get back in 1945 at the end of World War II when economies are pretty debt-free, but simply to load the economy down with more and more debt that stifles growth and ultimately ends up stripping all of its assets. So that's why I say if you want to look at the future of the United States economy, look at what's happening in Iceland, Latvia, and what used to happen in third world banana republics that were by debt. Now, with regard to the magic of compound interest, a few years ago, I bought an item at a, at a store for $34, and I misplaced the bill, and I ignored it. And within a year, the $34 charge went up to like two or $300. That wasn't simple interest. Uh, that's where all the fees that they added on. So what used to be looked at simply as a financial return of interest, the financial sector has uh, essentially got itself exempt from the state uh, usury laws. When uh, You mentioned before about uh, Paul Volcker raising the interest rate to 22%. Interest rates were so high there that in order to borrow money, uh, you weren't allowed to under the state usury laws, so the states abolished all the usury laws. And not only did they abolish the rate of interest that could be charged, but they abolished all of the side charges for uh, penalties and late fees and all of the other things, which is how IndyMac and Countrywide and uh, the other predatory lenders have all uh, been making their money. And these are the banks that, instead of throwing the heads of these banks in jail and prosecuting them, the government bailed them all out and made them all billionaires. And then, uh, instead of taking them over and running them in the public interest, left them in uh, private hands, and then didn't even take uh, the earnings that someone like Warren Buffett would have taken from them. So what you have is a travesty of uh, financial regulation here, and you have the economy being regulated by the financial sector instead of the economy regulating the financial sector. Something has to give, either the financial sector or the real economy, and the government sacrificing the real economy to the financial sector because they're the people who've bought control of the political election and lobbying process. In Bogus Solutions to the Financial Crisis, you go on to say that the latest panacea being offered to jumpstart the economy is to rebuild America's depleted infrastructure. But you also see a deficiency in this proposal. What is it? Well, if the government were rebuilding the infrastructure like they did in the 1930s, you'd be hiring people, you'd be putting them to work, uh, like all of the uh, the TVA, Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, WPA, Works Administration, uh, all of these other things. Instead, uh, the government is doing what is its version of what in Britain was the public-private partnership initiative, and essentially selling off its infrastructure on credit to uh, let private 
buyers come in and buy out the road system, uh, the streets for the parking meters, uh, anything that's in the public domain, and uh, essentially charging whatever they want without regulation. So America's becoming basically a Thatcherite or a Yeltsinized economy. And finally, you write that what economics really is all about is the debt overhead, financial fraud and crime in general, military spending, a key to the U.S. balance of payments deficit and hence to the buildup of central bank dollar reserves throughout the world, the proliferation of unearned income and insider political dealing. Well, Adam Smith called his book The Wealth of Nations because he was writing about how to get wealthy. The way to get wealthy today is not by producing goods and services, certainly not to work for a living and save. It's to uh, make a living by what the classical economists called rent-seeking and what John Stuart Mill called the unearned increment. It's to uh, make money in a predatory way by getting something for nothing, by being able to charge a price for something that doesn't have a cost of production. Charge a price for land uh, uh, that you've been able to buy on the cheap. Uh, Buy a uh, parking meter patent from a city and be able to put parking meters there. Essentially, to turn the economy into what the classical economists called a rentier economy, mainly a rent-seeking economy, a toll-booth economy, where uh, people just uh, get rich by charging for what used to be free. Michael Hudson, thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show has been Dress Rehearsal for Debt Peonage. Michael Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of The Myth of Aid and Global Fracture, The New International Economic Order. Dr. Hudson has written many articles on the current global financial crisis. He has been a consultant to foreign governments, including Canada, Mexico, and Russia. Visit his website at www.michael-hudson.com. That's michael-hudson.com. His articles are also carried at globalresearch.ca and counterpunch.org. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction.
Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying Look what this I just For peace